From South Carolina to New Mexico, Georgia to Hawaii, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, so-called ESG, or sustainable investing, could lead to the collapse of the global financial system. So says Paul H. Tice, author of The Race to Zero. He is here to explain. As Donald Trump closes in on the Republican presidential nomination, speculation as to who will be his vice presidential running mate is growing. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth is here with the real story. Have you noticed fewer chips in that bag of potato chips you munched on during the Super Bowl? It's something called shrinkflation. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine discusses the political implications. And the Trump-era tax cuts and jobs act is set to expire next year. If that happens, it will result in a massive tax increase for most Americans. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Woke ESG investing is sweeping the financial world, despite having serious negative consequences for investors. Paul H. Tice is author of the new book, The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. He joins us now to discuss. Paul, welcome to American Radio Journal. Paul, we're going to talk about ESG investing. And for those in our audience who may not have heard the term, which is likely most folks, tell us what ESG investing is. It's basically the theory that you should use environmental, social, and governance factors, all of which are non-financial in nature, and use them to drive both corporate policy as well as an investment policy. Um, as opposed to using objective financial metrics like we've used in the markets up until now. And ESG is predicated on the theory of stakeholder capitalism, which is the view that companies should be managed not just for their shareholders and bondholders and their employees, but for the good of society, for people and planet, as the World Economic Forum likes to say. So clearly that's not capitalism unless it's the end stage of capitalism, but it's more like socialism. And ESG, we should acknowledge up front, is basically the government working through pressure groups to direct the private sector and financial markets to achieve its aims, primarily climate change. And if there's one takeaway for readers from the book, it should be that ESG, the main focus, needs to be on climate change and the attack on the oil and gas industry, because that is the priority. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. But before we do, when you take a look at ESG investing, what impact is that currently having on Wall Street and on capitalism itself? It's been spreading for the last, I I would say, decade plus. Uh, Really, since the global financial crisis, it's made inroads on Wall Street And it's been pushed by the United Nations through an investor group that they formed back in 2006 called the uh, the Principles for Responsible Investment. And so you need to look at ESG investing as the third leg of the stool that the United Nations is pushing climate change, sustainable development, and now ESG investing provides the funding mechanism for the other two initiatives. And it's really been over the last decade that 
that you see it's integrated into basically all of the assets under management in Wall Street and really every firm. And the way it works, it's, it's, uh, it's a coercive process. If you step out of line, if you criticize it, whether you're an investor or a company, then you become the target. So most people are going along with this, not, not because they believe in it, like, say, a Larry Fink at BlackRock or a Brian Monahan at, at Bank of America. There are many more out there running companies and working for them that are afraid to speak out because it's a very coercive process. The analogy I use, it's like a, it's a, like a natural gas pipeline. The only way a natural gas pipeline works and moves gas from point A to point B is if you keep the entire system under pressure with compression. It works the same way with ESG. Many Americans, in fact, probably most Americans now here, Paul, have individual retirement accounts, IRAs rather than pensions, and government agencies where there's still a lot of pensions in the public sector. Public sector pension systems are investing billions and billions of dollars if the emphasis is on social goals rather than actually making money, what impact is this going to have on retirement, both for those who have pensions and those who have IRAs? You're going to be leaving a lot of performance on the table. I mean, depending on who's managing your money, is your pension located in a blue state versus a red state? And again, almost every investor on Wall Street is a member of this UN group, and that membership has a number of requirements but uh, it varies in terms of how those are being implemented. But it's already taking place right now. You've got a number of uh, fossil fuel bans on the investment side as well as the banking side. So you know, you're probably already missing out on good performance. I mean, case in point, in 21 and 22, the energy sector, both debt and equity, significantly outperformed the overall market because it is a commodity and it is cyclical at points in time if you're not allowed to invest in, in fossil fuels for moral reasons, you're going to be missing out on that performance. So it's probably already impacting you if ESG is being integrated into the capital that you've already provided to your advisor. And, and that's the, the big problem with ESG. It's, it's occurring through the back door. Nobody agreed to this, and it's being integrated into uh, funds that were raised years ago under a different mandate. So it's a big fiduciary problem. Let's talk a little bit more about the energy sector in particular here, Paul. It seems like the environmental left really does focus on fossil fuels, on the oil companies, the gas companies, energy companies. ESG investing, is it having an impact on the ability of energy companies to have the funds they need to go out and do the type of exploration that they need in order to continue to provide us with the energy we need? Yeah, it definitely will, and it's going to ratchet up going forward. You're seeing bank lending bans already, primarily in Europe, um, and we just had Barclays a couple of weeks ago announce that they effectively were backing away from oil and gas lending. So it's, it's already constraining capital that's being provided to the industry, and by definition, that's going to lead to less production, less supply, and that's going to lead to an increase in prices. And that's going to impact every American consumer, whether you're invested in the market or not. So it's already constraining capital. I think between now and 2030, and 2030 is an important timeline date for the United Nations for all three of these programs, climate change, sustainability, and, and ESG. So it's going to ratchet up from here to 2030. I don't like making long-term forecasts. I never did when I was a sell side analyst, but I'll go out on a limb here. And I think sometime between now and probably the end of 2025, 
There is the declaration of a global climate emergency, and then the regulatory push will get much more aggressive. We have been talking with Paul H. Tice. He is author of The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Paul, all of this is very interesting. If folks are interested in purchasing a copy of The Race to Zero, where can they find the book? You can get it either at the Encounter Books website or any major book retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc., The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Paul H. Tice, the author. Paul, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thanks, Norman. I appreciate it. Scott Parkinson, at the Club for Growth. Well, we might have a looming government shutdown, which always appears to be looming in Washington these days. We're going to talk about it. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks, Norman. Great to be back. Once again, we've had a situation, Scott, where rather than pass a budget, Congress has kicked the can down the road with these continuing resolutions, the deadline of the latest of which is approaching. Any sign at this point that there might be a resolution or are we headed for a partial government shutdown? That's a great question. It's probably the multi-million dollar question on K Street among all these people that are trying to get their anomalies stuffed into the next spending deal. And so how do we get to where we are? Well, you might remember that President Biden signed a continuing resolution back in January to avoid a shutdown. And there was this laddered approach is the way that they describe it. So the first set of appropriation bills are going to expire on Friday, March 1st. And the second set will expire a week later on March 8th. Uh, nonetheless, that, that could result in what's known as a partial government shutdown where essential services continue, but unessential and non-essential personnel are furloughed, and you get all this drama in Washington, D.C., and crisis legislating. And we know from previous votes that things are very, very tight. And Speaker Johnson, I think, is taking in information, socializing what the options are with his House Republican conference. They had a retreat recently down in Florida, and went over a lot of these big questions. How are they going to wrap up 2024? How are they going to ensure that they grow their House Republican majority? And how are they going to help Donald Trump win the presidential race? And so I think the most likely outcome here is that we do have some sort of an extension to the continuing resolution, not an omnibus appropriations, but an extension of current levels uh, that probably take us closer to September 30th than not. The Washington special interest groups, the establishment, they want to see that omnibus appropriation. They want to see all the foreign aid for Ukraine and other countries stuffed in there as a policy writer and as an anomaly. But I do think that Washington is broken when it comes to the federal appropriations process. So it's something to watch here. I would expect this to be the top conversation in Washington, D.C., among House, Senate, and White House negotiators over the next week or so. And as they're talking about wrapping up 2024, Scott, we're seeing what appears to be somewhat of an unusual number of high-profile Republicans opting for retirement rather than running for re-election this year. What is behind this exodus? Well, listen, I think that you always see a large number of folks retire, but what's interesting about this uh, time It reminds me, actually, of 2018 when we had a bunch of House Republican chairmen that decided to hit the road. And this time we've got Chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green. We've got Chairman of House Financial Services, Patrick McHenry. We've got the Chairwoman of 
Energy and Commerce, Kathy McMorris-Rogers. You've got many, many other senior House Republicans that just aren't finding the productivity and the value in the work uh, the same way, given the, the gridlock and the tension that I think exists in Washington. So that's part of it. But if anything, you know what it actually does is it creates a real opportunity for new ideas, new leadership, new voices to come to the table and and serve in important positions. We're obviously optimistic that we can get some of the club back candidates into those roles. We've got a lot of strong people. And it also goes back to this idea of term limits, right? We don't want people to be serving in Washington for 30 years. We want them to come to Washington, D.C., have a productive experience, and then return to their community where they can continue to serve in a in a high level. One of the more interesting parlor games that's taking place in political circles these days focuses on who is going to be Donald Trump's running mate as we go through the presidential primary process, wrap it up, and head to the nomination convention. Obviously, the president needs a new running mate because Mike Pence is clearly off the table. What's the latest scuttlebutt on that? Recently, Donald Trump did a Fox News town hall event hosted by Laura Ingram. And she asked him about his potential choice for vice presidential running mate. She asked about Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy, Byron Donald, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome, and former Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard. And in this instance, she basically said, you know, are all these folks on your short list, Mr. President? And he said, yes, they're all great. They're all solid. I'm considering all of them. It obviously doesn't limit the list to these six. I think that there's a real question on whether Ron DeSantis and Byron Donalds would actually be considered for the vice presidential slot, not because of any tensions. I think that they're both incredible leaders, and obviously Byron is a is a rising star in the House Republican Conference. But you got the big question here related to the Constitution that says that the vice presidential nominee can't be from the same state as the presidential nominee unless they're willing to forego all of the electoral votes in that state. And you may recall, back in 2000, Dick Cheney relocated from Texas to Wyoming in order to be George W. Bush's running mate. And in this instance, Ron DeSantis and Byron Donalds aren't independently wealthy, so I don't really see them leaving Florida. And I'm also very skeptical that Donald Trump would leave Mar-a-Lago and reestablish his residency elsewhere, whether that be Bedminster in New Jersey or, or somewhere else. So I think that it even narrows the list down more. Um, obviously, I've got my own opinion on who might be missing out of the six that Laura Ingram decided to throw out there. But nonetheless, the vice presidential sweepstakes are starting to heat up a little bit here as Donald Trump clearly is going to be the Republican nominee And I will make a bold prediction here today. I think that there is a 0% chance that Nikki Haley is going to be selected as a running mate. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, a few words about the club. Well, Club for Growth is based out of Washington, D.C., and its members are united in the idea of economic freedom and liberty and opportunity. Club allows you to sign up for free and become a member at www.clubforgrowth.org. And you can also follow Club on X at Club for Growth with the number four. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. All right. Thank you. It's called shrinkflation, less product for the same price. 
and it is yet another political liability for the Biden administration. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explains. Back when President Joe Biden was running for office in 2020, he explicitly promised that putting him in the White House would mean that you'll see your standard of living go up and your costs go down. That, well, hasn't happened. And if you're like me, you might be wondering, why is Joe Biden talking so much about inflation or shrinkflation, as he puts it? Because that's one of his biggest political liabilities as he runs for re-election here in 2024. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. We don't necessarily need to relitigate the entire economic history of the Biden administration in the few minutes that we have here. But here's a quick recap of the highlights or the lowlights, if you will. Inflation surged to a 40 year high, peaking well above 9% in June of 2022. Prices are now rising less quickly, but inflation remains well above the Federal Reserve's target rate of 2%. Biden's policies, and specifically that $2 trillion spending package that he signed in March of 2021, certainly contributed to the inflationary spiral. Economists will continue to debate how much of a factor it exactly was. There were obviously other factors, too, uh, coming out of the pandemic. But voters tend to operate on a much more facile level of rewarding presidents for good stuff in the economy and punishing them for bad economic times, and rightly or only Partially rightly, Biden's name is going to be forever attached to this bout with inflation that we've all experienced. So you might expect the president, now that he's in the middle of a re-election campaign, to try to avoid reminding voters of this whole topic. Don't talk to them about how rough the past few years have been. You know, focus on the future. Talk about the positive signals coming out of the economy now. And above all else, don't make yourself sound like an old man yelling at a cloud or yelling at his TV. In short, don't do this. You know, when buying snacks for the game, you might have noticed one thing. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. A bag of chips has fewer chips, but they're still charging it just as much. And as an ice cream lover, what makes me the most angry is that ice cream cartons have actually shrunk in size, but not in price. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. Some companies are trying to pull a fast one by shrinking the products little by little and hoping you won't notice. Give me a break. That was a video that the White House released on Super Bowl Sunday because the president declined to do the traditional Super Bowl Sunday interview with the network hosting the game. And so instead of doing that interview, the White House put out a few different videos with Biden talking about things like like this one, where he rails against shrinkflation. That's supposedly when you get a fewer number of chips in the bag or less ice cream in a carton, like Biden claims here. It's an economically illiterate video, but it's also pretty politically confused. So let's start with the concept of shrinkflation. Yes, look, this is a real phenomenon. I don't need to tell you that. If you've been to the grocery store recently, you know that. And most Americans have noticed and dislike it, according to polls. It is obviously a direct consequence of inflation. If the marginal cost of producing a chip goes up, even just by a fraction of a cent, because potatoes or corn or labor gets more expensive, well, then that entire bag of chips, 100 chips or so, is either going to cost slightly more or it's going to become a bag of 90 chips and still cost the same. That's just the way inflation works. Now, given that reality, Biden telling companies that he wants them to stop shrinking their products is a bit bizarre. 
if companies did what the president is asking, prices would necessarily rise. Is that really what the White House wants right now? A different version of this video might lean harder into trying to blame corporations for inflation and this resulting shrinkflation. This has been Senator Elizabeth Warren's thing for a little while now. She's talked about how grocery stores are somehow responsible for higher grocery prices and uh, has tried to blame corporations for so-called shrinkflation. That's also nonsensical because corporate greed doesn't rise and fall periodically. Grocery stores operate on incredibly small profit margins, and uh, none of the, the stuff that Warren is pushing really makes any sense once you interrogate it. But Biden doesn't even try to go down that path, try to go down the, like, populist, lefty path of blaming corporations for everything that's wrong. He doesn't even threaten to take any action against companies that are engaged in shrinkflation, and he doesn't really even call them out by name in this video. There's, you know, some chips and some other snacks arranged next to the president here, so you could, you know, infer certain things, but there's no direct call to action here by the president. All he accomplishes is reminding voters of a sneaky way that inflation is still robbing them. And as a political matter, this video is effectively a flashing sign telling voters, hey, did you think inflation is less bad now? Actually, guess what? It's still really bad. I'm really confused by, you know, in what world is that helping Biden make the case for re-election? For that matter, when was the last time the president actually went to the store and bought himself a pint of ice cream or a bag of chips with his own money? in a real grocery store. The more you think about it, the less sense this entire line of messaging makes, and the White House should probably stop taking this sort of political messaging advice from people like Elizabeth Warren. The time to fix inflation, as I've been saying for years on this program, is before it starts. Once it gets rolling, inflation gets out of control. It is difficult for politicians to do anything to curb it, Directly, you have to rely on central banks and interest rates and all of that. Uh, voters get really grumpy, quite irritable even, when faced with inflation. We've seen that play out in real time over the past few years. There's nothing Biden can really do at this point to fix inflation or shrinkflation. So the most powerful man in the world is reduced to looking like an out-of-touch old guy just shaking his fist at the sky. That's maybe an accurate image of the Biden administration here in early 2024, but it's probably not the one that the White House was intending to send. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. You can check out more of our coverage of the economy and politics and the intersection of the two and all of that, everything going on in Washington and around the rest of the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is set to expire in 2025, and allowing it to do so will result in massive tax hikes and harm the economy. So says Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council on this American Radio Journal commentary. Prior to the government-mandated economic shutdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic and the disastrous inflation due to the out-of-control federal spending, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, known as TCJA, or sometimes as the Trump Tax Cuts, spurred steady economic expansion across the United States. 
The tax cuts, which were the largest remake of the federal tax system since the Reagan tax reforms more than three decades before, allowed the spirit of entrepreneurship to flourish while creating new jobs, increasing real wages, and advancing opportunities for millions of Americans. Several key provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act for individual taxpayers are now set to expire at the end of 2025. Allowing these essential tax relief provisions to do so would harm hardworking American taxpayers, slow the growth of the United States economy at a time of economic uncertainty, and reduce America's ability to compete on a global stage. The TCJA brought a reduction in federal personal income tax rates for households across every income level, while the standard deduction was nearly doubled, resulting in a savings of more than $1,500 for the average middle income earner. The $1.5 trillion net tax cut was followed by historically low unemployment rates, an increase in business investment, and a $6,000 increase in real median household income over two years, which included scores of raises and bonuses for workers immediately after the TCGA was adopted. More than 100 million American taxpayers from all income groups, but especially middle and working class American taxpayers, have enjoyed real tax relief at the federal and state level due to TCGA. Now, our friends at Americans for Tax Reform kept a tally of 1,233 examples of pay raises, new job creation, facility and product line expansions, special bonuses, utility rate reductions, 401k match increases, and employee benefit increases attributed to the Tax Catch and Job Jack. However, the untold story of federal tax reform's success is the opportunity the new law has provided policymakers across America's 50 laboratories of democracy, where the unexpected tax receipts that are directly linked to changes in the federal tax code have been an absolute game changer in state capitals. These ongoing surpluses in state budgets contributed greatly to the state tax cut revolution that has swept the nation in recent years, as states have used those surplus dollars to enact historic tax relief. Making additional gains at the state level could be put in jeopardy if the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is allowed to expire. One of the reasons why is because the TCJA set an annual cap of $10,000 on the so-called state and local tax deduction, or SALT. If the current $10,000 cap on the SALT deduction is allowed to expire after 2025, the federal tax base will be narrowed. Moreover, this federal deduction acts as a subsidy for states and localities with high tax rates. Wealthy Californians and New Yorkers, for instance, with their larger state tax bills, can take larger SALT deductions against their federal income. Meanwhile, many of the states embracing pro-growth taxation, lower tax burdens, and fiscal responsibility, their residents see minimal benefit from the SALT deduction in many cases. Should Congress fail to extend these provisions, the return of an unlimited SALT deduction would be a perverse incentive for many states to implement higher taxes and spend at higher levels under the guise of lowering federal tax burden. In the years following 2017, state-level conformity with the 2017 tax cuts resulted in significantly lower state tax burdens for many Americans. States saw the revenue booms in the wake of conformity to the federal law, and that led to these surpluses and, of course, ultimately this tax relief we've been discussing today. A majority of Americans support making the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 
permanent. Tax relief saved enhanced take-home pay and boosted the nation's economy. Allowing the TCGA to expire would result in a massive tax increase on these hardworking American taxpayers, a significant decline in American competitiveness, fewer jobs, reduced wages and income for workers, and of course, increased prices on top of Biden inflation. Extended the provisions of the monumental tax cut is crucial to American taxpayer and enhancing economic growth. Once again, this isn't a topic you'll hear every night on primetime television, but it's one that could impact all Americans in the months ahead. For more information on this very important topic and others, you can visit alec.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WRPV-FM in Allport, Pennsylvania, WYHM-AM in Rockwood, Tennessee, along with KORQ-FM in Abilene, Texas. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.